coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a critical open SSH flaw that can expose your private keys, a new standard of wireless for Internet of Things devices that has all of the old classic problems, Intel Skylake bug, your questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 14th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's going to be a big episode this week because whenever we start out with an SSH flaw, you know it's going to be something applicable to the interests of our if, audience. Have we ever had one before? I think there was one other one that we did Possibly as a news story. One. Yeah. 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 They're it doesn't pretty happen rare. too often. Yeah. It's, it's no, kind of like a special. Spend, uh, quite a bit of work on yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. one of the important things is that OpenSSH is kind of a monoculture. There aren't many other SSH servers that anybody actually uses. So it's a big deal. Other than because... like tiny ones like DropBear that are in embedded things. But Right, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that one's also horrible. <laughs> or much worse. Well, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so that's probably yes. where we should start today, don't you think? Yes. All right, let's uh, talk about it. So they announced two critical flaws in OpenSSH today. The first one, uh, CVE 2016-0777, is an information leak or memory disclosure uh, can be exploited by a rogue SSH server to trick the client into leaking sensitive data from the client memory, including, for example, your SSH private keys. Uh-oh. No good. Big deal. Yes, no good. Yes. So uh, a commercial vendor contributed code for a feature called roaming, uh, which was introduced in OpenSSH 5.4 that could allow broken SSH sessions to be resumed. Right. The idea that, you know, if you're on your laptop, yeah. bouncing yeah. through Wi-Fi exactly. or your phone, Connected and you momentarily get interrupted. Which it happens. I, that's yes. my work case sometimes. You know, there's uh, workaround things like Mosh or whatever. I was going to mention uh, that. That's what I use. But it's like building it into SSH seemed like an interesting idea. Yeah. So the server side of this was never... Uh, in open source SSH, I don't think. Okay. Uh, but there's a commercial server that did support it. But it turns out uh, when they added support to this, they turned it on by default, uh, which is kind of makes sense, but it's also kind of not the way it's normally done with a new feature, especially something critical like open SSH. Especially for, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it turns out there's a, a bug in this feature that could allow it to, uh, a malicious server to be able to read memory uh, from your client and steal information they shouldn't have. Um, so the, as a workaround, they recommend you can add this, uh, line to your config file there with the use roaming no, and uh, your SSH server or client won't, uh, use roaming so anymore. This was introduced a while ago then. Yes. Uh, it was in open SSH version 5.4. Yeah. And, uh, the latest version is 7.1. Right. So it's been something that's been floating around, turned on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yes. is really, so many things usually get turned off by default. Mm-hmm. Well, especially something like this. Although to be useful, it would need to be on by default because if all your SSH clients don't support it, it's not going to help you resume very easily. Sure. Although really, if you, uh, you know, it can be turned on per session with a command line option or per user with a user config option, right? So it seems like it would have been better. Uh, especially just that the OpenSSH server doesn't support it. And so, uh, you know, how many 
of how many times your open SSH client make a connection to the commercial SSH server? I don't think very often. Hmm. Anyway, uh, one of the saving graces of this, though, is the uh, authentication of a server host key prevents exploitation by man in the middle. Oh, okay. So this information leak is restricted con- to connecting to malicious or compromised servers. Uh, because SSH checks the host key of uh, the server on the other side, it means if you try to SSH to a good server, somebody can't intercept in the middle and steal your key by pretending to be that other server because they don't have the key. Right? Right. So um, it can only happen if you're connecting to a server that is purposely malicious or is compromised and malicious. Right. Okay. Uh, Or if it's a server you've never connected to before. Mm, uh, or maybe it's the first time you've ever connected from that machine if it's a new setup or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Hmm. Uh, yeah, the chatman points out this is kind of almost the, like a heart bleed of OpenSSH because it's a feature that sounds interesting but nobody's actually ever using and it's on and it caused this problem. Hmm. Right? <laughs> uh, it seems like it needed more review before it got in in the first place and uh, that probably should have been off by default unless people wanted it. So how serious would you say this is? Um, not that serious if you're not connecting to random malicious SSH servers. Right? Uh, because you know, if you're only connecting to servers you control, as long as those machines aren't compromised and somebody hasn't messed with your SSH daemon, then you know, they're not going to use this feature. And you can uh, turn the feature off in your global uh, SSH config, uh, but you can also turn it off uh, per client, like by setting a uh, in the .ssh directory in your home directory in okay. the config there, you can turn it off for your user. So even if you're not root on the system, you can make sure your client never uses that. Although if you're you know, using SSH keys on a server where you're not root, then root probably can get your key anyway. So, anyway, uh, But you know, in the meantime, it means you can definitely turn it off even if your sysadmin hasn't got around to turning it off yet. Okay. And you can also turn it off uh, by, with a command line switch. Uh, you know, minus O, use... Uh, roaming equals no. Okay. Uh, and so it's fairly easy to work around. Uh, and they've got new versions coming out. Uh, so the latest OpenSSH 7.1p2 is out and should be in most uh, package repos now or very soon. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and so there's that. Uh, the patch just disables the feature, but uh, basically changes the default to be off instead of on. Uh, it's unclear whether... Uh, you know, a future version will go about actually removing all of that code altogether, or if they'll just try to fix the the problem. Or it's not clear whether it was uh, like a design problem with the way it works, and there's not a way to fix it, uh, or if it's just a bug in the implementation. Hmm, a bug by default. Yeah, uh, and then there's a second vulnerability, CVE 2016-0778, which is a buffer overflow, which leads to a file descriptor leak. Uh, and can also be exploited by a rogue SSH server, but due to another bug in the code, it's possible that it's not actually exploitable. <laughs> Gotta love a bug like oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and even if it wasn't for that, it's only uh, exploitable under certain conditions, which is the non, uh, non-default non configuration, where you're using proxy command, forward agent, or forward x11. Uh, so if you're not using any of those features, then it can't be exploited. Hmm. Uh, the only one I've I've used of those is proxy command, uh, which I think we did in a tutorial on BSD now on how to uh, deal with a jump host. Uh, for example, you know, uh, when I'm uh, using my laptop and I'm at a conference, I can't SSH directly to most of the servers at my house. Uh, 
But what I can do is SSH to my router and then from there SSH to individual machines. Right. And there are commands in my config file on my laptop which will do it automatically. So I just say SSH to, you know, home file server and it will actually SSH to the oh, router really? and from there, yeah. That's cool. You can actually configure the chaining like that. That makes it nice and quick when you're sitting down somewhere at like a conference and just want to connect really fast. Yeah, you That's just set nice. up, uh, you know, set up a short name for it and it'll, even if the usernames aren't the same all the way through the chain as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's very handy if you have to deal with secure hmm. networks. And stuff That's like a cool that. tip, Alan. Thanks. Uh, or a uh, similar one is uh, a bunch of the project infrastructure at FreeBSD. Yeah. Um, because IP addresses are hard to come by, some <laughs> of the jails are v6 only. So if you are somewhere oh. where you don't have IPv6, right. you can't get in directly. Yeah. Uh, and so being able to hop through some to a machine that has v6 to then get to that is very helpful. Uh, although I have native v6 at home now, so I'm happy. Boom. Boom. Anyway, uh, <laughs> both of those vulnerabilities are fixed in OpenSSH 7.1p2. Uh, and uh, we'll have to see what happens with the roaming support. Uh, it'd be really nice if somebody actually made it work and make it secure and we could use it. This is, but, this, is uh, this is one of those patch your ass stories, though. I yeah, mean, but the yeah, big it's thing with SSH here. Yeah, uh, the big thing with the roaming support is how do you decide when I'm going to come back and when I'm gone forever? Right? How do we avoid having a bunch of sessions pile up waiting to be resumed? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a timer. You know, if you don't reconnect within 15 minutes, it goes away or something. I, uh, you know, I, I have found that Mosh seems to work pretty well for me, and I don't know what it's. I don't know if it has a timeout. I don't know how that works. But I've disconnected yeah. well, from one one space here at the studio, gone home, and reconnected, and you know, just opened the laptop back up, and once I have an IP, the the session resumes. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. So I can yeah. see why they would want to build it in by default. Um, the only thing that really trips me up is that it was turned on by default so long ago. Build it in, yeah. but turn it off by default. I mean, there's so many things when you go look at the server config for SSH that are off by default. Just This would just be one more thing that you would just... And like, then it would be an intentional act. It, it's, it's something FreeBSD is actually bad for, is introduce a new feature, but turn it off by default, and then nobody ever uses it, and eventually the code rocks. Yeah, that is a problem, too. If you turn too. it on and it causes people problems, the problem will get fixed. It seems like this particular <laughs> kind of feature, though... Just, you yeah, know, this one to... isn't that a feature where you necessarily want it. Yeah. Uh, and so OpenBSD has a policy of normally turning on features by default, but usually those are security features mm. where you know it's better to have that on by default. Mm-hmm. In this particular case, it didn't seem like it was. But you know, if it wasn't for uh, the, the vulnerability here, maybe nobody would care. Uh, Right. Yeah. The feature is not supposed to be vulnerable. So whether it was on or off, but I suppose I suppose that's true. I suppose that is true. I guess uh, I guess the idea is that it's not vulnerable by default. <laughs> but yeah. you never know, though. That's the problem. Well, the other thing is apparently some of it might have been missing from the man page. Oh, really? <laughs> and so not only was it off by default, but because the, the you know it does it's not mentioned in the default uh, um, config file. And if it's not in the man page, then how do you even do you, know that feature is there? Yeah, how do you even take advantage of it and learn about it? And how do you? I mean, how does it? How does the discussion about using it even ever start? Right? It never yeah. even gets a chance to get going. Well, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. But uh, huh. it's just interesting that if it's not in the man page but it's on by default, that almost seems like it's a stealth bug. <laughs> 
I, uh, you know where I run Mosh? I run Mosh on my DigitalOcean droplets. I, I really, it's, it's a great way to just resume working when I move from the studio back to my house and vice versa. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your rig up in the cloud. If you use our promo code SNAPOcean, that'll give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. You can try them out two months for free because they have started at $5 a month at their base pricing. And then it just works up logically from there. You get at $5 a month, you get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, all SSDs throughout that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Fast mm-hmm. IO. I love it. One CPU and a terabyte. A terabyte of transfer. That is, man. I just that, – that, that gets me every single time. I love it. And they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and Toronto. That's what I call yep. Toronto, Alan. I call it Toronto. Is that what you guys call it too, Toronto? No. You don't call it – No, never. You don't call it the big Not T ever. or anything like that? T-bone? Just T-O usually maybe, but that's what it – Like like Tau or Toe? No, just T-O. Like literally pronouncing the letter. I think you guys should let me freshen it up a bit down there at Toronto. I think you should go get the no. Toronto – no? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, all right. How about this? Use the promo code SNAPOcean and get a $10 credit and support the TechSnap program. Go look at their awesome control panel. I have I messed up. I have an old running Arch droplet that I updated like three, four months ago, rebooted this morning. The network stack's gone. My bad. Guess what? Well, HTML5 console. Arch is bad, but... Hey, now. Luckily, it, you can fix it because you have the console. Well, this is the thing, and this is, you know, this is really probably why they don't offer it anymore. <laughs> that's a death drug you could run. But I got in early, and I wanted to hold on to it. I still might, too. But that's the thing, is I have an HTML5 console. doesn't matter what my device is. From post all the way up to login, I can manage it. It's really nice. In fact, I was, I was playing around with it on the live stream earlier before mm-hmm. we started the show. So they have a great interface for, like, restarting it or taking snapshots or just like what I might do is eventually back my configs up off of it, delete that droplet, and go create, like, an LTS droplet, maybe, you know, maybe like an Ubuntu LTS. They have all kinds of distros to choose from, including FreeBSD. They also have FreeBSD available. They have mm-hmm. great tutorials. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean and get that $10 credit and support this show. Go check them out. DigitalOcean, this is a great way to... show you the power of that HTML5 console, if you start with the FreeBSD image and then go into the console, you can replace it with OpenBSD or NetBSD. That is really something. I've seen a few guides on that. Isn't that intense? Yeah, I mean, exactly. You it's get like the full that, access that to that give thing. You, yeah, you basically it's the equivalent of having like BIOS access to mm-hmm. a physical computer, and mm-hmm. you can basically do whatever you want. It is, a, I, and, and I rely on features like that. You know, I use it for even for physical hardware. I use a feature like that for you know a lot of ISPs. Oh yeah. It's like, well, we don't know FreeBSD, so we don't want to set it up for you. It's like, it's okay. Just give me the console. I'll do it myself. That's I prefer it anyway because. You know, I like to do stuff my way. It's like uh, when when all the other when all else fails, like before I even get to super far troubleshooting, I'm like, I'm just going to go to the console. I'm yep. just going to go look at the console, and that gives me such peace of mind. So not so it lets you go as far as what Alan's talking about. But really, regardless of your skill level, you could go create a droplet and then click one button and deploy like an entire software stack from server all the way up to the web application, and you're good to go. And then they have great tutorials to help you work with all of that. I really like it. Plus, with the snapshot feature, you can always do something before you really hork it. So go over to digitalocean.com. Use the promo code DOUnplugged. DOUnplugged. <laughs> I mean SnapOcean. Don't give that Unplugged show credit. Don't give them. I was thinking about a story from Linux Unplugged, but you can give them credit if you want DOUnplugged. But nope. I would say give it to SnapOcean. Give it to SnapOcean. They deserve it. Those guys over the TechSnap program, they deserve it. Wait, who? who, who where am I? So DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And use the promo code SNAPOcean. And by the way, 
I've even got a fedora droplet deployed. Now, how about that? What does that? How does that make you feel? Is that crazy, Alan? Is that crazy? I, I, I don't know. It. Fedora is something we're looking at using because yeah. we need that graphics card support. You know what? You know what? This is why I'm doing it now. Uh, I have had a couple of successful upgrades from one fedora to the next fedora. They have a, they have this DNF upgrade process now that uh, does like it does all of the upgrade trans. It does like a transaction check and does like a test upgrade before it actually does a full upgrade. And so it runs you know what into that. Sounds like yeah, it sounds like the PCBSD feature yeah, we use with ZFS boot environments. Yes, so yes. not only does it do that yeah, so yes. that it doesn't break, I know. you can also always go back. I'm just saying it makes it a little more trustworthy on the server. So I've got a Fedora 23 server. I think it's 20 years. Yeah, uh, running over at DigitalOcean, and you can too. And I got it for two months for free because I use the promo code SnapOcean. Just saying. Thanks, DigitalOcean. Thank you very much for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I've got uh, a media server running on that thing called MB. It's pretty cool. It's like a Plex alternative, but it's open source. So I heard about a Skylake bug that came out. I, I, I just want, my, I want to get my hands on some Skylake gear, but before it's even shipping, I guess we've already found a bug? How is it possible? Yeah, so I might actually decide not to buy Skylake. Yeah, depending uh, on what they do here. At least until right? they do a new um, stepping. Yeah, and they're, they're going to try to fix this, I would imagine, but... I mean, it's shipped, right? So yeah. They're, so they're I, I don't know if it's something they can fix with a microcode update or what. I but think it they seems can. Like I will. I will wait till there's silicon that doesn't have this bug. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So what's going uh, on? Yeah. So Intel has confirmed that its Skylake processors suffer from a bug that can cause the system to freeze when performing certain complex operations. Uh, the bugs were reportedly discovered by test uh, and tested by the community of uh, hardwarelux.de, and uh, which passed into the uh, Great Internet. Marcine Prime Search. Oh, uh, so basically, if you run Prime ninety five on the processor, which is something I know I used to do to to burn in my processors yep. when I bought like AMD's and was overclocking them. That's just what I was, was going to say specifically for overclocking because yep. you know just keep going until it yep. calculates a prime that's not a prime, and yeah. then you know you've gone you've too gone far. too far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, these guys over a hardware tuning forum were running uh, basically what's called GIMPs, which is basically a distributed find a really big prime search thing, right? And uh, they found that uh, an inordinate number of Skylake processors were just freezing uh, when running the program. Uh, and so Intel states, uh, Intel has identified an issue uh, that potentially affects the sixth generation Intel core family of products. This issue only occurs under certain complex workload conditions, like those uh, that may be encountered when running applications like Prime 95. In those cases, the processor may hang or cause unpredictable system behavior. First thing is just re- realizing that Prime 95 is called that because it was written in 1995. For Windows 95 use, yeah? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, but it was written in 1995. That's so old now. But I guess if you're just calculating prime numbers, I mean, that's kind of I the same believe. thing. I can't believe. Yeah, I've been doing that for 20 years. I know, I know. Yeah, it made me feel old when I read this, too. It was like, oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Intel has developed a fix and is working with hardware partners to distribute it as a BIOS update. Right, which is essentially just probably going to, well, who knows, really. I'm guessing the BIOS will just install the updated microcode as the processor powers up each time or mm-hmm. something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, no reason has been given as to why the bug occurs, but it's confirmed that it affects both Linux and Windows-based systems. So it's at the CPU uh, level. While the bug was discovered using Prime95, it could affect uh, other industries that rely on complex computational workloads, such as scientific or financial institutions. Uh, the other obviously interesting thing here is I guess the server-grade Skylake chips aren't out yet, so hopefully they can fix this before they ship. Yeah. But can you imagine being able to just go to 
Amazon's cloud and run Prime 95 and as many VMs as you can spin up and just watch as the machines all hang until you've taken out the entire Amazon cloud. <laughs> I wonder if you could do it from within a VM. I wonder if I wonder if I that, think so. Yeah. I wonder because if it's just calculating math, right? It, it's gonna still still gonna affect it. I would think because that's the mm. problem. Well, that hey, that's a but it's got to be an extreme workload. But still, yeah. Uh, also, recently, Intel's Haswell and Broadwell processors suffer from a bug in the TSX or transactional synchronization extension. Oh yeah, right, right. This is a new feature Intel uh, introduced um, on for those line of processors, but the bug meant that if you used it, it would be bad. Uh, so they've uh, disabled the TSX instruction via a microcode update uh, delivered via motherboard firmware. So basically, if you bought one of these processors and hope to use the TSX, it's too bad because uh, Intel, instead of fixing it, just did a microcode update that disables the feature entirely. Ah, uh, they just turn it off. That's their yeah. fix. Yeah, just turn it off. Yeah. yeah. We Although do in the Skylake case, it doesn't seem that they can actually do that. Hmm. Uh, and then we have a link here to uh, a researcher who's found that there's I've uh, been kind of quite a few uh, bugs recently. I wonder if it's because they're pushing the limits, or? a little bit, and maybe partly because their competitor is kind of fallen behind a little bit. So you think uh, they're getting lazy? You think it's like, oh, we're not competing uh, as hard? But I think it's mostly just you know a lack of QA and just the push for it. Yeah, probably. yeah. Huh. Um, although the interesting thing is that it seems that the. Uh, the fault in microcode uh, that causes the infant loop can also affect AMD processors. Uh, oh. I don't, if th- I don't think that's this bug, though. That was a different one. Hmm. So, anyway, if you look at the, link, the last link in the show notes there, yeah. uh, they talk about uh, a different bug. Yes, yeah, so okay. it's a different bug that also works on uh, AMD. And this is just sort of, we saw, this, this, the title of this one is, we saw some really bad Intel CPU bugs in 2015, and we should expect to see more in the future. <laughs> oh, yes. dang. No, no, I want good CPUs. It makes me think, you know, here I was thinking, you know, honestly, I was thinking when the new Skylake NUX come out, I was going to build myself a new workstation based around the Skylake NUX. Mm. But uh, I don't know. I got, I, uh, yeah, I just, I have like, my main workstations are all the first generation i7 CPUs that came out. I think I'm really hot. Yeah, and they're just you know they're, I think I built I think I built my main station in 2013, so now it's starting to feel like it's, well then they're not first gen i sevens. No, that's not, maybe not not that one, uh, but that's my main workstation. It was built in 2013, and it's uh, I, I'm starting to feel like it's got it's I still got, have my first gen i seven. Uh, actually, Stefan's using it as a desktop right now. It's act, we're using one here as one of our servers here in the in the uh, JB Garage, uh, and so now I'm thinking you know this thing it's still got like. And I, this sounds archaic. It's still got spinning discs, Alan. It has uh, three 10,000 RPM spinning discs, and I, I kind of just want to replace it all with one you SSD. It's really terrible. What? We just, uh, mostly due to noise, yeah. pulled the two 74 gig 10,000 RPM Raptors out of one of the workstations in the office. Because the grinding noise they yeah. make when you seek around the disc is just so annoying. Yeah, really. You know, I used to like it. I used to like it because I could, I could tell relative to, it was like a sound feedback to know how hard my computer was working. Well, but the problem with those 74 gig discs really is because loud. of the density, the highest throughput rate they could do is like 40, 50 megabytes a second. Oh, mine are really loud. Like they're extra crunchy. Oh, yeah. These are, <laughs> oh, yeah. These it's are like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's not Plus, like your normal drive. the date. I bought them in like 2003 or something. Ooh. Like they're 74 gig. Yeah. Wow. So they're SATA, but they're SATA at the very beginning. So they're like 1.5G SATA. But also they have 
the regular old Molex connector and the SATA power connector. Oh, yeah. Not everybody has SATA power connector power <laughs> supplies yet. Yeah. Because these are so... Yeah. Yeah. So what are, are you going to replace the drives with an SSD or are you just not replacing them? Or? Oh, no. We, we just threw in uh, three terabyte Seagate spinning disks huh. because that's what we have boxes full of in my basement. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking... Basically, I've replaced them with some of our spare hot spares. <laughs> Have you heard of anybody using ZFS on external Thunderbolt drive arrays? Um, the interface doesn't matter so much, as long as the drive doesn't you know, go, go away all the time. But I think uh, Thunderbolt 3 would be way more reliable than something like USB, because it's like a PCI Express connection. Right. It's like, yeah. Um, it mostly depends if what, what the chip is in the enclosure. Okay. Oh, okay. Like, uh, right. I'm sure, I did all the research for it. We, we talked about uh, like they probably need, need to be a JBOD, right? It right. would need to show up as just a bunch of disks, not a RAID. Right. Did we ever do a story about uh, external hard drive encryption? No, I don't. Uh, maybe around TrueCrypt we did. No, this is recent. So I think uh, over the holidays while we were off, I bookmarked a story and did a whole bunch of research on it and forgot to put it in the show. <laughs> so maybe in a future week we'll talk about this. But uh, some researchers did some work on a bunch of external hard drives from like Western Digital that claim to do encryption on your drive. I've seen uh, these devices, how yeah. how terrible they are. Yeah. Uh, how easy it is to work. And it's like if you have a controller in your external drive array that is this terrible, uh, mm probably don't want to use it. So at CES last week or whatever it was, or whatever, whenever it is, uh, at the Intel booth, they said they're going to have a Skylake NUC with Thunderbolt 3 connectivity, full HDMI ports instead of having to do a little mini adapter. That mini adapter was really annoying. Yeah. I like my older NUC that doesn't have that. Yeah. And so I'm thinking if I could get something with, and they're going to do with PCI Express 3 for inside the NUC, and I'm thinking, you know, get a PCI, and they'll have two two uh, connectors for drive for those PCI mini PCI, M-SATA yeah, MSATAs. So I'm thinking maybe two of those in the NUC, and then an external like four drive enclosure that would be ZFS for all of like editing, and, and so it doesn't have to be crazy crazy fast, but you know, a couple hundred megabytes a second would be nice. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, or I should be able to do that, no problem. Yeah, so that's what uh, maybe middle middle of the year or something. Because like, then I'll replace. My, I think re- replacing my main rig in 2016. That's a 2013. I, I keep the monitor. I'll keep the keyboard and mouse, and just replace. You know, the, it's a huge. It was actually one of the first Hackintoshes I built to do Wirecast uh, way back mm-hmm. in the day. And then when I replaced it with an actual uh, Mac Pro, I think that's what they the, the power Mac towers. Uh, Mac, the Mac, not the crash can, but the the last of the towers. I replaced mm-hmm. it with one of the last of the towers, and I took that Hackintosh and made it my main workstation. And it's been, I mean, I built a really nice machine for that, but, I mean, it is just getting dog old. So I, I think I'm going to be buying a CPU this year. So when I see these bugs, it's like, I don't know if there's a way out of this. Like So like this article speculates here, uh, we're just going to see more of them. So it's almost like just buckle down and deal with it in a sense and hope that they fix it with yeah, microcode well, updates. Yeah, uh, so... It'll be interesting to see how many people actually get around to installing the BIOS update. <laughs> yeah, there is a, that is a thing I don't do anymore, really. And I do it when I'm deploying well, a new machine. Like, I get everything all up to date. And maybe if I'm reloading the OS, I might maybe do it. In, in particular, almost every motherboard manual tells you not to do it unless you have, right. you know, a known issue. That, right. I mean, the old, the old philosophy of the BIOS is if it ain't, break, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But right. the problem Although, is you might not even know it's broke in this case because it's yeah. not a BIOS problem. It's a CPU problem, so you're not thinking... It's like, what in the background is causing my computer to freeze randomly? Yeah. 
<sighs> interesting. All right. Well, any other thoughts yeah, on that guy? Interesting to see what happens with this and uh, how I, it goes. Yeah, I think it's I think it's telling because these CPUs are getting so super complex. It's so many different levels. We all know that from like a yeah, software uh, standpoint. And, Rikai points out that um, a lot of motherboards has dual BIOS now because I've, yes. I've almost always had that because I always buy yeah. like, tuner motherboards yep. back in the day. Yep. I don't know if like a lot of like random Dells that you buy actually have dual BIOS. Uh, it's like it seems to me Dell would like save the ninety cents and not buy the second. Chip. I've only ever seen it, I think, with custom built machines. I'm trying to think of maybe they do, maybe like Lenovo and others do it, but they probably you know they don't call it that. They probably have some sort of this all, yeah. all behind the scenes kind like, of stuff. Like I would even have to check if like my Super Micro Workstation motherboard actually has dual BIOS or not. It's almost. I mean, I've always seen it more geared towards enthusiasts and mm-hmm. PC custom builders and overclockers. Well, yeah, you know. Half my motherboards have had a button on the back to reset the I love BIOS that without button. having to take the case off or pull yes, the battery out. That is that is that is so nice. Yeah, that that machine I have upstairs has that button, and it has an, uh, a little LED uh, number digit readout to tell you where the problem is. Yeah, uh, yeah, in addition to the beep codes. Yeah, just yeah. The codes. yeah, that's nice. Uh, and then some of the nice ones also have the power and reset buttons on the motherboard, so mm-hmm. that you. Can- Run it outside of a case. Yep, yep, yeah. Although server motherboards don't like that very, they usually depend on an airflow. And yeah. So they very angry very quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of servers, let's not worry about all that. Let's go with IX Systems. This is where you go to get your rigs. IXSystems.com slash techsnap to learn more and support this show. Going there's like a landing page, lets them know you heard about it here, and gives you like hyper focused access to their white paper. Which is a great opportunity. Once you've kind of realized that IX is the, obvi- is the obvious choice, now you might need to convince people around you in your organization. That white paper is going to help you do it. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Enterprise-grade servers driven by open source. They have an incredible customer service team at the sales level, at the engineering level, people behind the scenes. You know, often if you get to go to a convention, you'll get a chance to see folks at IX Systems because yep. they're truly part of the community. It's really mm-hmm. cool. I'm going to see them at scale. Yes. Uh, also, if uh, there's just a little bit of time left for the FreeNAS logo contest. That uh, is so cool. Yes, uh, you can win $750 or a free NAS Mini, which can be worth more than $750, uh, by submitting uh, your edition of their uh, new logo for the free NAS. You know, when I look at TrueNAS, I, I really like that TrueNAS logo. That's mm-hmm. they should Maybe the two could have like a meeting of the minds, because that is... Well, I think they want them to be pretty separate. Okay, all right. That's pretty cool, so, yeah. though. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, yes, uh, basically with the new uh, free NAS 10 coming soon, they want a fresh logo and... Sure. Uh, but, you know, unlike a lot of logo contests I've seen, they've actually given you the stuff you need, like a list of these are the different fa- form factors we need it to work in. We need, you know, uh, a black and white version of, of, of one color versions for like, you know, on invoices where it's going to be like photocopied or whatever. And the different version for the web and it's like we need this scale. And then they give you like all the different colors. And, you know, it's like we need, you know, the official colors of, of IX systems and FreeNAS are like Pantone blue number P7, whatever. Yeah, you know, all the good stuff. There is not a better NAS for the small business or home enthusiast on the market. I I think I've had mine for two years now. Yeah, more than that, maybe. ECC, you want to know for a fact that it can actually saturate dual gigabit ports. You know, a lot of the other ones you buy at a store are going to have some like tiny embedded processor that can like starts crying if you try to do 500 megabits a second. Yeah, and you know the thing Which is too, only 60 megabytes a second. It's like I have USB sticks faster than that. The thing about it too is uh as somebody who's out and had one for a couple of years, I can say my next my ne- I think my next my next purchase will be another free NAS mini. I was just looking, you know, they sell them on Amazon with freaking Amazon Prime, uh yeah. which is amazing. They're selling a 24 terabyte storage unit on Amazon. 
I buy that. Uh, it comes. They, they, you, you can buy it without hard drives and put yeah. your own in, or yeah. you can buy it with and then sure. get the warranty. Yep. Yeah. I, I for me, my money's on buying it with because they're not they're not yeah. charging a whole bunch for the disc. Well, and, and just, you yeah. also know for a fact that it's going to be the right kind of discs for a NAS that are going to have a warranty that isn't void if you use it in a NAS. And I'm not sure if this is with discs or not, but because of the design and that server grade uh, processor Atom CPU they're using, that that cool Atom CPU. It yep. is like it's not your grandpa's atom at all. The no, thing it's pulls the server like, grade atom, but only uses like seventeen watts. Seventeen watts. Seventeen watts. That for something you're going to run all the time, that is a serious consideration too. And something, it has the virtualization offload. It has the encryption offload. Right. So you can run your Plex on it. Uh, when FreeNAS ten comes, you'll be able to run VMs on it. Yeah. So here's the thing. This is how they roll at the FreeNAS mini level. And then they go all the way up to massive enterprise grade, unbelievable rigs that you've never even yes, fantasized they, they built, about. Like petabyte rigs, where it's like two heads and the top and the bottom of a rack, and the entire middle of the rack is just full of shelves full of yeah. discs. Yeah. So imagine so how passionate they are about that. That is, I mean, if they put this level of detail and attention into FreeNAS, and they're not just doing it at the product level, they're also doing it at the community level by by helping p- pave the developers who work on it and by working with community members and reaching out to open source projects, bringing on board people to work on these things and give put support and actual marketing behind it. That They start, they're that passionate with the FreeNAS mini product level all the way up through the entire thing. It's pretty cool. So go check them out. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you to iX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And just a reminder, guys, you can find those free NAS minis on Amazon with freaking Amazon Prime, which I love because, like, when I get to the point where I'm ready to pull the trigger, the fact that it's on Prime is pretty killer. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And a big thank you to iX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Looking forward to seeing you guys at scale next, uh, next week. Whoa. This time next week, I'll be at the floor on scale, at scale. I'll probably have said hi to Denise. There's a good chance of it. All right, so I love me some Wi-Fi. I love me some Wi-Fi. I'm going to have it everywhere, and I'm going to have all of my internet things connected to Wi-Fi, all broadcasting at 2.4 gigahertz like a boss. I'm going to turn on my microwaves. My neighbors are all going to have Wi-Fi everywhere, and I'm going to use my cordless phone at 2.4 gigahertz, and I'm going to roll deep, Alan. Right? No problem. Apparently, you didn't read the summary for this uh Particular article because oh. it's not 2.4 gigahertz. No, I know. I was just I was just being <laughs> okay. mean to Wi-Fi. I was figuring yes. you have a new solution for us. Yes. So uh, the Wi-Fi alliance that makes the little logo that says this supports Wi-Fi or whatever that goes on devices is working on a spec for a new Internet of Things specific Wi-Fi called Wi-Fi Halo H A L O W, which okay. will use a lower frequency, uh, sub one gigahertz. So I don't know if that means 900 megahertz or even less. Uh, that will go through walls better and will have longer distance, but oh, use yeah. less power. Yes, yes. Uh, so specifically designed for embedded things. Uh, it probably won't be as fast, though. You know, this isn't uh, meant to save battery on your cell phone. This is meant for embedded things, Internet of Things, things, smart house, smart city type things. Things that have uh, constant power sources. Is that what you're saying? Possibly, uh, not necessarily, but things that uh, where it's about having the connectivity, not about it being fast. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the, the new protocol is based on 802.11ah uh, from the IEEE standard. Um, and uh, basically, it differs from wireless signals that most current devices use in a couple of ways. Firstly, it's designed for low-powered uh, devices and uh, will operate in a range uh, below 1 gigahertz. And uh, the protocol will also uh, have much longer ranges than traditional Wi-Fi. 
a feature that makes it attractive for use in applications such as connecting traffic lights and cameras in smart cities. So it's Halo or Halo? I think it's Halo. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that would probably be the word because it's it's spelled H-A-L-O-W. With the L being capital. Yeah, okay. So they're probably trying to be clever and calling it Halo. But the idea is, is like... I guess what, I'm, what they're trying to say is it's, it's going to ca- because it's 900 megahertz or whatever in that range. Yeah. It's going to cast a Go wider through walls better. Yeah, basically. okay, that's clever. And, uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, so basically, you spend a lot less electricity. Uh, well, I don't know if they mostly mean from batteries, but you know, obviously, if you're going to run it, use it to run the stoplights forever. Uh, saving some power is obviously kind of useful, mm-hmm. uh, but also, yeah. So the idea is give you longer range, uh, but because of the lower frequency, probably less bandwidth, but uh, maybe more reliable as well. Boy, that'd be brilliant, uh, though. I would love to have that. Uh, well, I don't know if it's really going to be for most types of things. I mean, obviously, you're not going to want to use it for your regular internet no, connection because no. it's going to be slower. No, but I, I do. I am sincere. What I was when I was setting the story up, what I was joking about is, I think one of the biggest drawbacks to these Internet of Things devices is the Wi-Fi. Last yeah. uh, uh, last time I was, what was this? Uh, fr- uh, Sunday, I think. I was trying to go on air, and I have these Hughes lights that are in the studio that I can adjust to different colors to match backgrounds and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And they are managed over Wi-Fi. They, they connect back to a control hub, and then from your smartphone, you connect to the control hub, and you manage it over, the, over Wi-Fi. Only every now and then, there's like something that happens here, and all of the uh, 2.4 spectrum gets, gets completely blasted. I don't know if it's because we're right next to an airport or if it's because there's literally 80 access points around me, and all of a sudden something goes crazy. But every now and then, Wi-Fi drops out. And so yesterday, my Wi-Fi dropped out, and I couldn't manage the lights in the studio, and I needed or wasn't I'm not sure if it was yet. I can't remember what day it was, but I couldn't go I couldn't go further because I. So what I ended up having to do was go to a machine that was wired, go get an open source application that can interface with that hub using its APIs, and then reset the pairing on that hub. Uh, thankfully, I, could, I was able to plug it into Ethernet and then use the two wired the two wired devices to be able to control each other because Wi-Fi was just unavailable for me at that moment. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the more devices you put on that Wi-Fi network with Internet of Things, the bigger this problem is going to become. And the more devices on Wi-Fi, the, the worse the network is going to perform, the more noise on the network. And it's all a one broadcast domain to begin with. So mm-hmm. if you have a whole bunch of devices on, they're all chattering, broadcasting over Wi-Fi. That's going to make performance horrible. So I now, think fundamentally Wi-Fi... same thing, but... You can see Wi-Fi access points two kilometers away. Huh. <laughs> this will just be a second Wi-Fi that'll be get just as crowded and be just. Yeah, as I guess so. In here. fact, the fact that it's nine hundred megahertz or whatever it is, does it actually say nine hundred in here? No, it doesn't. Okay, uh, but just, we're assuming well, it's somewhere around there. spectrums. Yeah, exactly. Like nine hundred megahertz is what cordless phones used to use. Yeah, the ones when that you could better. actually go mm-hmm. like a block from your house and mm-hmm. it would still work. Yeah, you're right. This could make it way worse, huh? You remember, I used to have, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but uh, when, when the, I don't even know if they were 900 megahertz back in the day, they must have been the really, really first wireless phones or cordless phones yep. uh, that had the big antennas on them and everything. Oh, yeah. Not cell phones, but just cordless phones that hooked up to your landline. Uh, I remember being able to pick up and every now and then catch the neighbor's conversation at my grandparents' house because they lived, you know, house to house to house really close to each other. And you could hear their phone call every now and then on your wireless phone. Yeah, there were uh, usually like 24 channels, and it, they got better to like auto-pick a channel. It's yes. Not, but you could like scan them. Yeah. 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 You had to, and every now and then during a call, you had to change channels because it would start getting bad. So you'd have yeah, to. <laughs> probably because somebody else was talking. So the phones would eventually, they give the handset and the endpoint uh, like a big number mm-hmm. that would augment the signal with. 
So they were just basically really cheap scrambling, easy to break, but it was so that you couldn't accidentally listen in on the call. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if somebody else ended up on the same channel, you would get all the static and you'd change. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so you're right. This could actually be way worse, couldn't it? It could yes, be the opposite of what I was hoping for. Basically, all that Wi-Fi pollution will now have longer range. And there's going to be so many devices doing it now. They're not all going to be broadcasting in AP, though, but they're all going to be still transmitting. So, mm-hmm. uh, Well, and can you imagine the traffic lights stop working because the Wi-Fi gets too busy? Yeah, oh, jeez, especially when a bunch of cars have these devices in them and they're all, you get, right. you get a so, road jam. Uh, part of the question is, you know, maybe, maybe they will have multiple spectrums and, you know, the one the city runs on will be licensed so that, you know, only the city can use it or something. But that doesn't really stop anybody from making a device to disrupt the traffic lights either. And as the chat room is asking, yeah, the protocol is based on 802.11 uh, AH. AH, yes. Yeah. Huh. Well, I could – I mean, it does feel like – it does feel like current Wi-Fi isn't suited to have a house full of uh, devices. I guess you could be smart in how powerful the transmitter is and they could maybe self-manage and you could say this – you know – Really, Alan, if they were really smart devices, you could even with another device say, this is my perimeter, adjust your power accordingly so you do not broadcast beyond this perimeter. Because you can do that today uh, with like uh, Unify access points or whatever. What are those called? Unity access points that uh, Noah's ta- Noah talks about them all the time. And they have the capability of sensing all the other access points in a building, say a school or a hotel or something like that. They can sense all the different AP points and automatically adjust so that way they're not overlapping each other in broadcast. And so there's no reason these devices, if they're all, not communi- if they're all communicating and they're all talking on the same wireless standard, they could maybe self-adjust because, like, here at the studio, this is a duplex. I, 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 and at, like, a townhouse. We have one half, and then we have an, somebody on the other half. And uh, they – we just have a wall between us. It's like a it, – you know, it is like a regular house. So you really would have to be able to mm-hmm. dial that in um, carefully, I would think. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, well, and then there's talk also about using it for, like, wearables. <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So the, the new version of Wi-Fi could also be useful for connections among smaller, lower power devices like smartwatches, fitness bands, and other wearable technology. The Wi-Fi Alliance, which certifies Wi-Fi compatible devices, is overseeing the usage of a bunch of new proposals. It's like, well, you know, that's what we have like Bluetooth low energy for, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sharon points out it is ubiquity. It's ubiquity networks and the Unify AP that uh, I was talking about that does that. Yeah. Uh, all right, any other thoughts on this guy? Uh, yeah, so the actual point we had is <laughs> we should get to that one. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so Wi-Fi Halo uh, is uh, – sorry, the, the Wi-Fi – the people that are trying to get this to be a thing are like, Wi-Fi Halo is well-suited to meet the unique needs of the smart home, the smart city, and indiv- industrial markets because of its ability to operate using very low power, penetrate through walls, and operate at significantly longer ranges than Wi-Fi can today. Uh but then we say, but as with any new protocol or system, Wi-Fi Halo will carry with it new security considerations to face. Uh, and the, one of the main challenges will be securing all the various implementations of the protocol. Device manufacturers, all, um, you know, all implementing things in their own way and in their own, their own time, uh, a practice that has led to untold security vulnerabilities every other time. We can't expect it to be different this time. You know, innumerable billable hours for security consultants are, can be assured. <laughs> you know so while the standard could be good and secure we don't actually know yet uh implementations by different vendors can have weaknesses and security issues uh, this is common to basically every protocol you know it, and 
how many times we see that with the first Wi-Fi and how many different iterations of security things for Wi-Fi did it take before we got ones that weren't completely terrible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and really, we haven't ever really exceeded WPA, too, as far as, you know, wide user adoption. Remember, like, the WPS, there was the thing where uh, because of implementation problems, if you watched what the WPS code 10 times, you could then guess the secret and be able to get on somebody's thing without having to... Web, yeah, yeah. Well, not web. The WPS, the one where you press the button. Oh, it, oh! I was thinking WPS was that. Yes. Oh my, yeah, yeah. The easy setup stuff. Yes. That, yeah. Where basically, yeah. if you just get a sample of like ten or twelve of them, mm-hmm. you can figure out the secret, and then from that, yep. be able to just associate with the device without knowing. And, any and password. if you think about why that's bad, these were consumer devices that were just sold off the shelf at pretty shelf at pretty cheap prices. So you just got right. Well, the point of this was that. Your Wi-Fi would be secure. With a Rather than having button. a password, you press the button, pair yeah. it with your device, yeah. they would communicate, set it up, and nobody would ever have the password. Yeah. And you know, nobody, no bad people would be able to get on your Wi-Fi. Yeah, wireless Except protected setup. They, yeah, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, it was uh, terrible. Well, even the protocol maybe wasn't that bad, but most of the implementations were terrible. Right, uh, as always. So, yeah. Pretty typical. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who could possibly be worse at implementing security uh, and implementations than the vendors and government contractors that would be used to set up a smart city? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, many of the devices that may use the new protocol, which uh, isn't due for release for another couple of years, are being manufactured by companies that aren't necessarily accustomed to thinking about threat modeling, potential attacks, and other issues that computer hardware and software makers have had to face for decades. Right? The guys that make stoplights don't know about hackers yet. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, that could lead to simple implementation problems that attackers can take advantage of. So, you know, this all begs for, you know, like uh, one nice, clean, BSD-licensed implementation uh, that everybody would just use. But even that in itself could be problematic, right? You would have a monoculture, everybody using the same code. So if you find one bug in it, it applies to everything. So that's not really a good plan either. Yeah. So how do you do this? Uh, but worse, uh, as we've seen, most vendors will ship an old, insecure version anyway. Mm-hmm. So even if we, you know, there's like UPMPD, a free one, and it's like they've fixed all the security vulnerabilities like five years ago, and uh, people still ship the old one in brand new products. Yeah. You know, uh, rather than shipping the latest version, they won't update the implementation even as they iterate their product. You know, the extended range of Halo also means that attackers can come from much further away, making it harder to physically protect devices. You know, part of the security of Wi-Fi at the moment is that you have to be awfully close to my house to get my signal. Uh, if all of a sudden you can get it from quite a ways away, that can be problematic. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That is sort of like uh, probably the number one thing that protects most people, most average users' homes is the fact that you can't pick it up from that far away so people aren't messing with you. Mm-hmm. And then so uh, what they talked about for this is all I have to do, if, if I'm a hacker in a foreign country, if I can manage to get some malware on your phone, I can now fiddle with the computers via this new Halo Wi-Fi of everybody within a couple kilometers of you. Yeah, you could. <laughs> Not that you can't do fairly well with regular Wi-Fi at this point, I suppose. You know what this is, is we're at the stage of something where we can see the market requirement for a technology solution, and you can also see the way the industry is going to go is going to be another one of these problems where we're going to create a solution. It's like we have two years before it comes out, 
and we know it's going to be terrible, yeah. and there's nothing that's actually going to get done about it. Right. And it's like, it's going to hit the market, and then there's going to be a, a scramble to sort of come up with patches and fixes, uh, you know, aftermarket solutions, and then, and then eventually, you, you know. Firmware updates that nobody yeah. installed. Right, exactly. And it's just, oh, you can just see it coming, Alan. You could just, and we're just going to have to watch it happen. We just have to watch yeah, it or, happen. you know, we're going to see stoplights with no firmware update capability built into them so that uh, uh, the city installs them, finds out they can be hacked, Yeah, has to replace them, has to buy yeah. brand new lights. Yeah, which, which, which will come with contracts for maintenance and support. And, and, you know, they can't get out of the old contract for maintenance, even though the device is unusable. So they have to pay the maintenance contract to the old vendor and the new vendor. Yeah, and then you're going to have things like they're going to, for home users, it's going to be stuff like they're going to build this thing, these things into TVs, you know, these smart TVs. They're going to build them into these smart TVs. And then, you know. That's something I didn't have for the roundup. But somebody uh, was showing off their LG smart TV from like 2013 or something. Yeah. I get a nice notice. Uh, as of December 31st, 2015, uh, we're end of lifeing this support for right. all the online components. Right. Your smart yeah. TV is now dumb. Yeah. I mean, I have a I Vizio. I turned on my Vizio the other day, and it's like you just—we just installed a software update. I'm like, oh, you did. So what happens three, four years from now? Is this Wi-Fi access point that's installed in my Vizio? Is that going to get? Uh, is that going to get updates? Is that going to continue to get? Uh, are they going to well, turn not it getting off? Updates is not as good as actually having the software gut itself and just not work. <laughs> or yeah. like you know, the software depends on a web service over at. The the manufacturer, yeah, and they just turn that off, and now your smart TV is literally dumb and can't do anything. So what happens when we start building? So I bought a dumb TV. So we, uh, yeah, when we start when you start building on when you start building this in now everything's going to be like this, everything. Yeah. We've seen the same thing. You know, uh, there was was it, I think Samsung fridges that had Google Calendar integration, yeah. and Google changed their API and deprecated the old one after a couple of years, and they haven't updated the. Uh, yeah, the Noah has one of those, and it. So I, I knew I. Found the story somehow. Yeah, it's 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 funny because the thread where people are complaining about it on Google groups, he's in that thread. It's like yes. a famous thread now, and he's in there complaining about it. And yeah, so he got it. So that way, because he's a he's a contractor, and his thinking was, you know, I mean, he, he owns his business AltaSpeed, who has a bunch of clients they support. And his his thinking was, as I'm getting my morning juice or whatever, I'll look at the calendar and see where my first appointment is, and that's kind but, of a nice also, feature. You know. If you're trying to sell smart home stuff to people, being able to give them a tour of your house that's all set up with it mm-hmm. helps a lot. Yeah. Having it, his fridge be, you know, firmware error, out of date, not working, really doesn't help that. It's, you know, it's got to be maddening because he has to look at it every day. Every day he goes to his fridge and sees that this expensive fridge with a built-in LCD screen isn't updating its calendar feed. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's it like, prompts him with some error message, too, about not being able to get it. Yeah. And, of course, I Samsung could update with, it, but... I remember years and years ago, a friend and I were talking about building a computer, a kitchen computer system for grandmas and so on, or moms and grandmas that had like recipes and stuff. And we would have killed for a knock, basically. Yeah. Because there, there was something kind of like that that had like a low power Celeron in it. Yeah, but sure. It was just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's uh, going to be, it's going to yeah. be the way of the future. Last point they have here mm-hmm. is uh, each new iteration in technology brings with it fresh security and privacy concerns. And the proliferation of connected non-computing devices is no different. The concept of a voice-enabled hub that controls your home's climate, entertainment, and other systems is now reality, as is the ability to send an email from your refrigerator. That's all well and good until these smart devices start doing really dumb things. Mm-hmm. Well, the biggest one is like, sure, it comes with all these fresh 
security and privacy concerns, but we also haven't solved any of the ones from the last generation yet. If if Wi-Fi Halo didn't have any of the problems of every previous Wi-Fi, it would actually be an improvement. But it's just going to remake a bunch of the same mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Isn't, it, isn't it almost maddening that as we move forward and we learn more about security and technology and new ways for uh, people to be attacked, we aren't like the other, like the right hand knows what all that stuff, but the left hand of the industry is completely ignorant still and pushing forward in a way that's it's like as it's long not, as people continue to buy insecure products, it'll happen. But I if those the only huh? products that are there, what are they going to do? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. A security a vendor that actually made good products would have the problem of it costs so much more that nobody would buy it, and yeah. so then all that's left are insecure vendors. Yeah, and if you wanted to be Samsung and you wanted to sell, you know, literally hundreds of different models of uh, fridges and televisions, you you just can't scale support for every one of those devices. You know, you'd have to do like two fridges and three televisions and just support the hell out of them for years. And, and, you know, like a television, everybody has a different expectation. The industry might want us to have a three-year life uh, use out of them. And, you know, some people have a 10-year use life cycle out of their television. So it's, there's a huge mismatch between what the industry wants to do and what consumers are expecting. And then, you know, you take the fact that consumers are uneducated on this stuff to begin with, and they don't even know any better about, you know, updating this stuff. It's, it's a recipe for basically making the average home vulnerable to attack. Like I, my TV, I did seven years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that the, the, when, yeah, I think my, my, my current TV that like the big TV I bought was when I got when we built the house like eight years ago. Uh, so, and it's still and a great I television. I actually seven years ago, replace my TV. I got a bigger one, almost mostly because it was on sale for a really yeah. good price. Yeah. Uh, so that I could use my old big TV in the office you know to what? Great run point. a loop of... of um, yeah, I do the same. It I runs just, the loop of our monitoring system and so on. So, you get so a, yeah. Yeah, I'm still using that TV. I have their TV. I replaced the seven, like seven or eight years ago when I got the big TV. I replaced a DLP 720p unit that I'd bought four or five years before that, and I, that's still being used. That's like the kids' TV now. It's like the TV, the TV the kids used. So yeah, and that's that's almost. I mean, Alan, that's that's over ten years ago. I bought well, that yeah, TV now. You know, for my parents, we got them the smart TV because I can give her stuff on a USB stick and it'll just play. And it hooked up Netflix because they don't have a computer upstairs at all. Um, and that was good. And I hope yeah. that it doesn't break because that'll upset me. Uh, but when I bought a TV, I bought a dumb TV. Yeah, that's nice. Plugged it into a knuck. Yeah. Said it sits beside the TV. And that means I know for a fact that the mm-hmm. software is not going to, you know. The problem is that's, a, that's pretty like, at least here in the U.S., that's not really an option for average consumers because none of the electronic stores that sell televisions here offer anything like that. Anything like what? A TV without a whole bunch of software on it. Well, they're all Amazon. Yeah, yeah, so, sure. There's ways to get them, but I'm saying like for average people are going. It's like a cheap Sylvania. Yeah, no, I'm just saying people are going into Best Buy and Costco around here. Yeah, well, Costco. Well, I think Costco does sell some dumb TVs. I don't think but so. In general, Best Buy is like, well, you know, what we want to do yeah. is only offer the ones with this because we don't want to sell cheap TVs. Yeah. Yes, I like having I like having the control myself and 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 having it limited and although, just be a you know, dumb display output if possible. Yeah, although sometimes we, you know, 
having it built in has a bunch of advantages until it doesn't work. Yeah, and it was it was, it was sort of an interesting experience for me from a you know just from a sort of experience standpoint to go get a Vizio television from Costco, install it, and then work with something that has a Wi-Fi access point and all this. Like it was a good experience for me to go through from like a commentary standpoint, but it's frustrating from a consumer standpoint. Yeah. No. All right. Speaking of things that are frustrating from consumer standpoints, cellular companies, wireless oh. companies. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So uh, I have some stories I could tell you, but really what we should really focus on is making it better. And that's Ting. Ting is on a mission to make mobile make a lot more sense. It's very simple and straightforward. No contract, no determination fee. You just pay for what you use. They take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, add them up, and that's all you pay. Average monthly bill per device for Ting customers is $23. That is nothing for a smartphone. And if you're Wi-Fi savvy, you can get a lower than that. It is really something. They have an early termination relief program if you're stuck right now, like with one of those duopolies. They got GSM and CDMA. So go to techsnap.ting.com and save right away. Plus, if you have a compatible device, they're going to give you a service credit. I really like Ting because they have super passionate customer service. They have a really good dashboard. But I also like what they're about. I like how they're letting customers... Take control over this stuff, letting you pick between GSM or CDMA, letting you control individual services on your device. And I also like their stances on really protecting net neutrality. And the thing I really like about Ting, like all of these things combined, is the core philosophy of Ting is okay however you want to use them. If you want to be clever and never use a minute because you're making all your calls over Wi-Fi, have at it. If you want to just use Ting as a dumb pipe, have at it. They're not about super complex gimmicks to get you to keep re-upping service. They're about just giving you great cellular service. And I want to play a clip here from a Ting CEO uh, where he touches on uh, music streaming services and net neutrality, things like that. Elementriatus on Twitter asks... Given that Ting uses the T-Mobile network and T-Mobile users get free streaming of music, does Ting offer free streaming too? It's a fair question. Uh, the answer is no, and, and I'll, I'll defend my answer uh, uh, with three points. Uh, first is uh, our wholesale costs are such that we're, we're paying for all that data usage and, and uh, uh, we really can't afford to, uh, uh, to just uh, suck up those costs uh, entirely. Uh, second is, is a bit of a... Um, uh, a, a, a principled thing where we uh, we're so fiercely committed to uh, to being this sort of dumb pipe uh, where we want people to use the service uh, however they want. We, we never want to try to steer people towards any particular content, any particular app, any particular provider. Um, and we feel like a policy like that almost inevitably ends up doing that, if that makes sense. Uh, and then third uh, is really just that we have tried to move away from uh, all these sort of tricks around pricing. Uh, we're, we're, we're this price on weekdays, we're that on weekends, we're this if you're consuming this kind of data, uh, that if you're consuming that kind of data. Um, we really feel like inevitably uh, that makes the whole world of pricing kind of convoluted. And, and, and in the end, we say, this is what you're going to pay for data, this is what you're going to pay for voice, this is what you're going to pay for text. Look at your usage and see if you end up saving money. And, and uh, um, if you ask 10 customers, they almost always do. And, and so we really want to stick to that kind I sure do. TechSnap.ting.com. I save money. I've been using Ting for almost three years now. TechSnap.ting.com. A big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And a big thank you to everybody out there who supports this show by visiting TechSnap.ting.com. Go see why I think they've got the best dashboard, the best customer service, and 
all unlocked, ready-to-go devices that you own outright. Some of them, you know, just the feature phones with great prices, all the way up to the Cadillacs. TechSnap.Ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I like that guy's answer, Alan. I like that answer a lot. I think that was very cool. <laughs> you know, how many years are we begging for dumb pipes for everything? Mm-hmm. Just... I, think, I think two cows gets it is really what it is. Well, it's yes, because the important thing is that while T-Mobile is telling you you're getting free streaming, you're paying for it. Basically, right. they're charging everybody as if they were going to use some a large amount of streaming, and then everybody who doesn't is more profit for T-Mobile. Yeah, and then they also setting up backroom deals with certain companies. I just I don't like I don't like the uh, precedent that it sets either. So you know what precedent I do like the one the BSD Now program sets. That's right. Uh, get your Engine X started. Episode one twenty four of the BSD Now program. What's going on here? Now? What's this uh, about? Uh, we interview Igor Susiev, uh, the creator of Engine X. Well, that's that's a heck of an interview. Yes, uh, we managed to uh, get recover uh, our interview that we did with him in Malta in 2013. Uh, it's from 2013. Yes. Wow! Uh, he said he was up all Rick night on that. To, yeah, <laughs> he worked all night long on that for you guys. So there you go. Props to uh, Rikai for that. We're running out of people to interview. Uh, we kind of. Uh, end up with a gap in the schedule and yeah, no yeah. interview and try to You know, show. one of the things that's always kind of interesting is there you know there's always favorite interviews you can always go back and visit them and see how their projects are doing too. Mm-hmm. Get a little update from but, them. But uh, we are looking for more people to interview. So if you know someone that you'd like us to interview, please let us know. Uh where where do you want them to send the feedback to? Feedback at bsdnow.tv. Boom. And go check them out. BSD124. BSD now episode 124 is up at dot. Calm. All right, Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB site. Or maybe you start a thread in our subreddit at TechSnap.reddit.com. Mike writes in with our first feedback this week. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I currently work for HP Enterprise Open NFV, and I recently was tasked to set up some mirrors to handle the replication of large data sets. Ooh, here we go. The data is mainly 100 gig compressed images. The problem is some of the locations we don't have the best in terms of bandwidth. Um, hints on that's why they're using a local copy. I know of some proprietary solutions that could accomplish this using deduplication and block level replica- replication, but I would much prefer an open source solution to this problem. The problem is... There are large images, which will get modified, but will have very little data delta in terms of the overall file change. I would hate to have to reseed the full file after every modification, so a block-level syncing solution would be much preferred over something that requires to move to a whole file rsync. This would also be one-way sync, so there, the source gets modified, and then it would get pushed to all the mirrors. So I was wondering if you think that ZFS replication would work in this situation. Uh... You know, I was going to... I think you meant familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, P.S., I figured I'd let Alan know uh, it's his fault for uh, that I'm running FreeBSD on my laptop after running through several Linux distros and getting it completely frustrated that my wireless either not showing up or was being unstable. Well, while I was listening to Alan on BSD Now, my wireless crashed, so I figured that was a sign I needed to try my wireless card, or get my wireless card stable. Thanks for the awesome work and the production. Keep up the awesome... And, oh, he also yes. says awesome relevant sponsors. Well, thank you, sir. Yes. Uh, so, ZFS will work great for that to the point where what you can actually do is set up the original machine uh, 
and make your mirrors deeper. So, like, instead of two discs in a mirror, make it three, four, five, something like that. So get the array all set up. Then you can take one drive out of each VDEV. Uh, you can either use the zpool split command or just detach. Uh, for completely separate things, yeah. So use zpool split uh, to take one disk out of each of your mirrors, box that up, and ship it FedEx to your remote location. Then they put that in their server and add you know, more drives to make it redundant. They can just have local drives for that. Uh, save on shipping or whatever. Uh, so that their mirrors come... And then they have all, the latest version of the files up to when you uh, shipped it. Then over the internet, you only have to sync what changes each day. Yeah. So, the, the, you know, like two days or whatever to catch up to while it was on the road. But then, yeah, it's block-level replication... Nice and easy. So, when, uh, and just to be clear, when we're saying block level, we're saying uh, you have a large image file and only yeah, part of the image file changes. And we change a couple blocks here and there. We don't have to resend the whole 100 gigabytes. Yeah. We only send the file. The way ZFS works is it doesn't even know about the files uh, when it's doing replication. Uh, each block in ZFS has a birth time. Basically, it's birthday. Uh, and when ZFS does replication, you just say, here's the old snapshot I have. So I have all the files from Monday. Uh, and I want to get all the files as of the snapshot we took on Tuesday. So ZFS just goes through its list and says, give me every block that uh, has a birthday after whatever time on Monday. And it just gets this giant list of blocks and just fires them off over the internet as fast as it can. That's cool. Uh, And it works very nice. Uh, And yeah, the best part there is by doing the zpool split, you can create a new pool using one disk out of each of your uh, mirrors, uh, and then you can you know add more disks to that to to make it into mirrors again, and ship it, or you can add the other disk on the other side, and uh, hmm. that way you basically can seed your replication. You know, if if you're starting with like 20 terabytes, you don't want to send that over. Yeah, no kidding. That's a really great. That's a great way to sort of get it pre-started mm-hmm. for you, and then just sync the cha- the changes from there. Yeah, which would be uh, much so that, smaller. That's how we've moved files between data centers before when it was too big. Uh, and and you're familiar. You're familiar with some projects that are using ZFS to move large files around the internet now, right? Yes. Well, uh, I host the mirrors of the PCBSD package repository, uh, which is a couple hundred gigs. And yeah, we replicate. You know, Chris compiles them, sends them to me, and then we replicate that all over the world. Uh, although uh, now that Chris has a gigabit internet connection as well. Um, really? He may actually become. Uh, he <laughs> look just, at, he look just at got you an two. How, how, are you, how are you guys doing this? And what do I got to do to get Gigabit here at so the studio? So he rented an office in a location where there was like fiber in the parking lot. He set up his own just, office now. Well, he, he leased an office for. Is he going to do the show from there? Or is he still going to do the show from home? You know? I don't actually know. Interesting. Because he could have a pretty rocking. He just got co- all the lighting set up at home. Oh, really? <laughs> but, uh, Go figure. Maybe he'll set it up at the He can move the lighting, so but yeah. yeah well, I, 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 I'm feeling left out. I need Gigabit. Rekai, we need Gigabit at the studio. I'm going to get Rekai on Well, you, you know, it's not cheap. No, it's a three-year contract. Yeah, that's why it's never going to happen for us. <laughs> yeah. Unless we got a, well, unless we got a you sponsor. You don't have a rack of servers in your shed either. No, right? I know, but uh, actually, just as we're doing the show, like I'm watching our Comcast connection is actually starting to degrade as right and like, during the segment. I'm like, I got to get rid of Comcast. But you know, in my area, they kind of have a monopoly. If you want anything above four megabits, <laughs> so all right. So you think yes, he should do it. That's the Alan Jude take. Uh, yes. Yeah, so ZFS will do this for you. Uh, you might consider depending on. What those images are, I'm guessing they're reference images of virtual machines or something. Mm. Depending what they are and how you access them and how you rewrite them, 
um, adjusting the ZFS block size can make a big difference. Uh, you know, if your changes are small, then using a smaller block size will mean less overhead. Okay. But it can impact some other stuff, It'll, you know, more redundancy. So, um, whereas ZFS now in newer versions has support for one megabyte and bigger blocks. If you one megabyte block, you might actually get some better performance because instead of, you know, eight blocks to do one megabyte, it takes one. Uh, okay. So that's <laughs> more based on, so the rule of thumb there is if you're, if you're, it depending on if you're moving. It depends on the workload and yeah. how you're doing it. Right? Large if files it, versus small files, basically. Well, not just that, but if it is a large file, but you're using iSCSI and accessing it as 4K sectors, then if you use a 128K block size and you change 4K of it, you have to rewrite that whole 128. Oh, that's a really good tip. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. So it really depends. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in, in mirrors is fine. On, the, on RAID Z, because um, to help deal with fragmentation, uh, if you have, say, 4K sector drives and you have, you know, a six-drive array or whatever, so you have four data drives and two RAID Z drives, uh, when you write with RAID Z2, uh, the allocations on the disks always have to be a multiple of three. Okay. Right? Because you have uh, one data block is the smallest amount of data you can do, and then you're two for parity. So when you write, you always make sure that the allocation to the disk is a multiple of three. So if you have an 8K record size, then you need two blocks for that and two blocks for parity, which is four. Well, that's not divisible by three, so we pad it out to six to make mm. it divisible by three. Mm. Uh, this is so that after you free that one, if, if you allowed me to just allocate a four-block one, then if you had one that was taking six, and now we have one that's taking four, there's one that only has two blocks left, and you can never use it. Because if you're writing only one block... And two parity, you need three blocks. And so now there's these two blocks of space you can never use because they're fragmented and it's too small. Uh, and then your disk would fill up with those and all of a sudden, you know, 100 gigs of space would free and you have no room to write a 4K block. Okay. That's uh, really good to know so too. to deal with that, uh, using really small block sizes can have uh, really increase your overhead if you use a made set. But since you're using mirrors in this setup, it's not an issue. That is great to know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yes, ZFS will do that, and it will do it very well. And if you have new enough ZFS, uh, I think it'll come with FreeBSD 10.3 that comes out uh, in like two months. Uh, or if you're using FreeBSD 11, then you have resumable send. So even if your internet connection breaks, you will be able to resume the replication and continue. That's really nice. This was built specifically because uh, Delphix, the company where Matt Aaron's one of the co-authors of the original ZFS, mm -hmm. works, they do database replication, and sometimes a database is big, and it takes two weeks to replicate. Yeah. And, and sometimes things can just be rebooted in that time or something. Well, some or people's internet, internet yeah. just means that there's never a stretch of two weeks where the internet doesn't have a hiccup for two minutes. Present. Hello. Yeah. Accounted for. Right here. Uh, okay, so Jeremy wants to write in and just pick your brain. Um, I don't know if this is a topic we've talked a lot about. He says, I was curious about your opinions on HTTP2. For starters, I fully understand some, like the FreeBSD developer Paul Henningkamp, don't like the short development for HTTP2 and is based on speedy without any real regard to other ideas. I'm not defending the development stage, but nevertheless, we now have HTTP2, which offers multiplexing, pipelining, server pushing, compression of HTTP headers, support for HTTP 1.1 headers, fallback support for clients that don't support HTTP2. So again, I realize the standard could have been made better, 
But we have what we have for HTTP2, and it still seems like a big win to me. Modern clients and web servers support HTTP2, and at least most of it, I guess. And I noticed that Nginx now has many how-tos on getting it set up. They seem all for it. I will say, unless I've missed something, server pushing doesn't seem possible on current versions of CentOS due to underlying OS dependencies. It is possible on FreeBSD and some other Linux eyes. Thanks again for TechSnap. Keep up the great work. Loyal TechSnapper, Jeremy O'Connell. I don't know what the server pushing is that it would depend on the operating system. Uh, so Paul Henningkamp's objections are mostly because he builds a web server called Varnish and doesn't like the way the protocol is built in the way that he will have to architect Varnish to be able to support it. Uh, I know Nginx originally said that it would be like a year before they got HTTP2 support, but uh, it seems pressure has, uh, or a pile of money has changed that. Mm. Um, I don't know that much about it. Um, a bunch of those things will make life miserable in certain ways, but maybe it'll help. I don't know that compressing HTTP headers makes that big of a difference outside of mobile. Yeah, it seems like a lot of this is for mobile. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> hmm. I'm just uh, looking at different it, responses. It'll really, it'll really have to depend how long it takes to actually get there. Huh. Seems like it's moving faster than I expected, I guess, is, is my, yeah. sort of my response. Uh, well, server supporting is one thing. People actually using it is another. So here's an interesting one. I wanted to get your take on this one. It came in from Agent Spin. Uh, I was running analysis and some research on the UK government web portal. Mm. Uh, trying to find some best practices or even good practices that I could present. Turns out the URL discipline and control over the root level .gov.uk is effing awful. Here's a sample link I found uh, where the content has been hijacked by Russian spammers to hijack the browser and send them to some casino spam promotions. And here's another one. He says it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty standard compromise page stuff. Not sure who I even report this kind of thing to. And here you can see we have. Hey, look, he's using the right. same uh, Chrome theme I am. <laughs> Uh, well, in, in this case, basically, the .gov.uk delegates a subdomain to each of the governments. And these are, like, looking at it, there's, like, a tiny city governments and so on. And they have their own website somewhere, and their WordPress gets compromised or whatever. I don't know. Look at this thing. So I went to visit it, and now I'm going to a casino site. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> it's got, hey, that That's, looks like a fun game with penguins I could play. Hold on now. This isn't a mistake. It looks very much like Steam. Yeah, it does, I'm doesn't sure on it? Purpose. Yeah, it really does. And I can sign up now for hot sports games, and there's a jackpot casino rolling right now. I should click now and get in on it. That's really interesting. Yeah, when you're $9 million huh. from the Russians. Yeah, I should, they'll pay up. Uh, but in dollars. general, basically, I don't know that gov.uk has a facility to say, oh, you, your web server got compromised. We're taking away your .gov address. You know, in this case, when you look at the whole domain, it's obvious this is like some tiny city government that should know better but yeah so you're yeah we don't really if anybody in does, those particular cases you would have to report to those specific city i would think so people rather than the track them down people that run gov.uk this is a thread in our subreddit if you have any insights techsnap.reddit.com yeah, to find that i don't know how big haxby town council i thought it's is. interesting it's interesting that he found this and shared it with us uh and i bet you know just looking around uh, he just came across that somebody should know so yeah. yeah like uh the I know in the U.S., you know, they don't give every city their own .gov or anything, do they? No. No, yeah. I – well, except for I think what happens is, is, well, I think cities just go set up their own. Well, it wouldn't be a .gov though, right? I'm it checking. It would be like no, .state.us no, no, or something? No, it is a .gov. 
I'm looking oh, at so I'm looking at the two local towns here. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we have Marysville wa.gov uh and then there's also arlingtonwa.gov. Huh. Yeah. I never really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. It's a nice page too. Look at that. They got an eagle on there, Alan. They got a bald eagle on there cuz America. It's got America yeah. on there. Huh. Well, uh when that face gets that site gets defaced then <laughs> Right, I'll keep an eye on it. So uh, that wraps up our questions for this episode. Now, what we decided to do is uh, we have a, we're going to have a PF Sense blowout next week. So if you've sent in a PF Sense question, we're probably going to answer it next week. If you've got a PF Sense server, been eyeballing a PF Sense server, or don't think you need one, I'd encourage you to tune into next week's episode where we'll cover all of that in the feedback segment, which means we need your email. So please go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, and choose TextNet from the dropdown and send in your questions. Storage. Networking, security, performance, infrastructure, you name it, we'll be happy to answer it. Or you can also send it directly to TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our amazing, powerful subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Like this first story, the U.S. Intelligence Director's personal email and phone, apparently, get cracked by crackers with attitude. Uh, so we're talking about Clapper here, the guy who lied in front of the Senate saying that this uh, NSA didn't spy on Americans. Uh, he says, someone going by the moniker Kraka, claiming to be with a group of teenage hackers called Krakas with Attitude, uh, told Motherboard that uh, they had gained access to Clapper's Verizon Fios account and had changed the settings for his phone service to forward all calls to the Free Palestine Movement. Kraka also <laughs> claimed to have gained access to Clapper's personal email account and his wife's Yahoo account. In October, Crackers with Attitude claimed responsibility for hacking the CIA director Brennan's personal email account that was on AOL, where they had an application for security credentials. I was actually going to ask, is this related to the AOL thing? But yeah. it's same guy. Same group else. or same guy, at least, yeah, or yeah. claiming to be. Pretty embarrassing, especially with the whole Hillary Clinton email investigation going on. So both Brennan, the director of the CIA, and Clapper, the overall director of all the intelligence agencies, have had their personal accounts compromised. Nothing major here. But it's pretty embarrassing that the tops, these top guys, these top well, intelligence guys. Well, they done quite a few things with the redirecting his phone calls. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that, they could, you know, if it had been a cell phone, they did by getting to the, you know, if you use Verizon for a cell phone, right? You know, they t- mostly talk about his Fios here. But, you know, then you could get uh, two-factor authentication codes sent to his phone if you can redirect his phone number to your cell phone, right? Could have been that. Right. Could we have talked been. about a story. Uh, remember, I think it was last week when we talked about the Krebs PayPal account getting hijacked at Christmas. Uh, we, there was a guy in the comments who had his bank account drained because uh, somebody walked into the cell phone store and migrated his number to yeah. a new phone. Yeah, and then uh, had all the two-factor auth stuff for his bank sent there so that they could empty his account. I wish I could do a really good fake high voice because uh, it would be great for this next story. Seagate. Using helium, like we've talked about before, is rocking out to a 10 terabyte hard drive. Look at that. So uh, even though previously uh, Seagate said they didn't need helium, uh, so when HGST, which later got bought by Western Digital, um, came out with the 6 terabyte drives, they used helium to get that big. And Seagate's like, we don't need helium. And they did a 6 terabyte drive. And then HGST did 8 terabytes, and Seagate did 8 terabytes. Uh, And they're like, yeah, we can do that without helium. Uh, But now Seagate's like, well... 
we've used helium and now that means we can do 10 terabytes uh so they fit seven platters inside the same drive because they can squish them Ooh. closer together Ooh. uh and they have 14 heads in there uh doing oh my writing. gosh and, uh, yeah increased data density by 25 percent that's nothing to sneeze at nope and after you're all done <laughs> using these discs you can crack them open and make your voice sound funny yeah yeah <laughs> that'll definitely avoid um I don't know what these are going to cost yet, uh, but 10 terabytes sounds pretty good. I agree. I agree. You know, I have a bunch of the 6 terabyte helium ones, and they're very nice. This next story, I was just complaining about Comcast, wasn't I? Mm-hmm. So uh, this, this guy buys himself his own modem to save money on the monthly price. And uh, after he buys himself his modem, Comcast harasses him constantly, calling him all the time, sending him letters in his bill saying, hey, you know, if you upgrade, you can take advantage of our much improved service, which is faster and better for you in all kinds of ways. And he concludes, well, you know what? My Netflix and my YouTube work just fine. I don't want to pay anymore, so I don't need an upgrade. Ergo, not upgrading. Thanks, Comcast. But now they've moved to more aggressive measures to try to get me to upgrade, he writes. The other day, I was browsing the web on my phone on my home Wi-Fi, and then... I got a pop-up notice while browsing on Wired.com. In big red letters, the notice alerts me that action is needed on my service. It reads, our records indicate that the cable modem, which you are currently using for Xfinity Internet service, may not be able to receive the full range of our speeds. To ensure you're receiving the full benefits of your Xfinity Internet service, please replace your cable modem. And uh, here's a screenshot of the... uh, Yes, so gotta love them doing HTTP interception to uh, randomly inject this into other web pages. Yeah, and I, I, I get their logic here was, well, nobody checks their Comcast email account because not a lot of you guys are using right. that, and you're not checking your bill because we're not getting a response from you. So, now- so yes, using that, like I know they do it for like, uh, I think, bandwidth cap or they, piracy crap and so on, but uh, doing it for we think you should pay us more money is crossing a line that yeah. you know was way over there. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I just like, you got you to... Gotta, I guess I guess the problem is is once they have the tools to intercept and work with the people's uh, internet traffic, they're just going to abuse them. They're going to use it for DMCA violations, billing issues, and now service. They're, they consider this to be a service issue, Alan. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, next story in the roundup this week. Police say they can crack BlackBerry PGB encrypted emails. Police in two countries have claimed that they can read encrypted data from BlackBerry devices. Aren't they supposed to be the super secure devices, Alan? Well, it's, if it claims to use PGP... That's supposed to be pretty good, right? Yeah, and representative from NFI confirmed that we are capable of obtaining encrypted data from BlackBerry PGP devices, according to a report from Motherboard. On Tuesday, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police also told Motherboard they can crack encrypted messages on PGP Blackberries. Why are they all admitting to this? It seems like they would just do the standard U.S. line saying we can't comment on issues of national security. Uh, I guess that's just sort of a heads up more than anything, really, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Well... BlackBerry kind of has a reputation of having lawful interception type setups. Uh, you know, it's kind of a reason why it's big in some uh, other smaller countries is because the government can, uh, you know, they make a device specifically and so on. Let's talk about Cisco. Let's talk about they also are in all kinds of countries. Uh, Cisco patches a hard coded password, now service vulnerabilities in its software and devices. Uh, so this is according to security advisories that were pushed out yesterday. The most serious bugs that existed in Cisco's wireless LAN controller, version, uh, version 76120 and later, and 80 or later, and 80 or 81 or later. <laughs> we talked about this, was it last week or a week before? No, uh, this is a different one. 
Oh. But yet another Cisco device with hard-coded passwords. No. I finally fixed it. And also apparently a denial of service vulnerabilities. That has been a, it has been a bad couple of months for Cisco. It has been rough. All right. Ontario court police orders breach cell phone users. What? Uh, Ontario court or- says that uh, when the police use an order to do what's called a tower dump and get all the information from a cell yeah. tower, yeah. that's a violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is similar to your constitutional rights or whatever. Okay. Or okay. Whatever. All right. Okay. That's good. So that's the, so the police have to stop doing that essentially, or or something, right? They, I mean, I guess is that is that the essential takeaway from this? Yes. Uh, all right, and then moving right along. Now, this is the one I'm excited about. Fixstars has released a 13 terabyte SSD for f- specific types of workloads. It's I've never heard of Fixstars. No, and they and use a proprietary Fixstar controller to make all of this happen. They have in a 2.5 inch form factor too. 13 terabytes of storage in a 2.5-inch form factor. 540 megabytes a second sequential read, 520 megabytes a second sequential write performance. They're using the proprietary SSD processor, which delivers enterprise reliability and consistent performance. The company didn't release any random performance data, but with small DRAM buffer for a page table mapping, the random read and write workload performance would be low in comparison to smaller capacity product shipping today. It's, it's, it's optimized for sequential data, making it what I call a NAS or SAN optimized SSD, the article writes. But okay, I guess for that size, maybe, but like those transfer rates are not really that good. Like you can get SSDs that'll do that. Not that big, but... 13 terabytes. Oh, Like actually, usually what that means is that the SSD is actually fairly slow and it's just writing a lot to a bunch of different cells at once to get to that speed combined. Uh, uh-huh. Which also means a random one will be really terrible because if you're doing small blocks, it's only going to write, it won't be able to pipeline it the same. Um, hmm. But yeah, like, you know, you can get SSDs that the 500 megabytes a second read and write is really not a big thing anymore. Well, right? Fixstar is, uh, Fixstar, I guess, has a name in, in Hollywood for media productions, SSDs already. Uh-huh. So maybe okay. this, you know, write, write well, in really but, large video you know, If you need an SSD that big and their price isn't terrible, that seems like maybe, but yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in uh, the uh, NVMEs, and then when we get to NVDIMs. So this next story has me confused, because I was under the impression it's also affecting Windows and Linux as well. But NVIDIA is blaming Apple for a bug that exposes like your porn habits when you're using incognito mode. Yeah, so basically if you use Chrome and use incognito mode, uh, obviously the stuff on your screen is in your video card's RAM. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I guess it's because they use some acceleration or something. Anyway, so uh, a student, a researcher, somebody at a uh, university in Toronto uh, browsed some porn on YouPorn, uh, closed his browser, came back a couple hours later, and fired up a video game, Diablo 3. And uh, when the screen first fired up, uh, it was a snapshot of his porn browsing session uh, because that was still on the video card, in the video card's memory at the time. Uh, NVIDIA says that uh, they've not been able to reproduce it on Windows and Linux, and they say it's a problem with uh, OS X not erasing the video memory when you close the program. Uh, and also, uh, some users on Reddit are reporting that it also apparently affects AMD graphic cards uh, yes. on OS X. Here is, here is, here, I, maybe I put it in next week's episode. We might check the roundup for next week. Uh, oh, I, I deleted that link because it was... Oh. Duplicate. Uh, it, it appears to also be affecting other platforms, too. So I'm not exactly, exactly sure what's going on here. It's possible it could affect other Maybe. platforms. Maybe. I'll have to read more up on it. They uh, seem to say that it wasn't. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this next one's something. Check out this doozy. Uh, Delhi, the Daily Telegraph has installed workplace monitors on journalist desks. The little device uh, that has a heat sensor in it, a motion sensor in it, uh, and they were unannounced. Staff just started sitting down, and they had to Google the brand name and discover they were wireless monitor detectors produced by a company called Occupy or something like that. Yeah, Occupy. So yeah, this it's is Occupy. All it's doing is is keeping track of whether you're actually at your desk or not. Uh, it's, tra- it's, tri- it's triggered by motion and heat. Allows management to access the system's ultra sensitive yet ultra reliable uh, tracking to make sure they can do to monitor real time one to one space utilization. Uh, and then I guess the results can be then viewed on a sensor by sensor basis, which gives bosses complete access to data about whether an individual is at their desk or not. And then once this article ran. The uh, tel- the uh, Daily Telegraph removed the devices from the uh, journalist's desk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In light of like feedback we've received from the staff tip. today, it's been decided to withdraw the under-desk sensors immediately. <laughs> huh. Yeah. You know, it seems like a relatively normal, uh, you know, attendance system. Really? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a little creepy, know. but... Maybe a little, but, you know, if all it is is a motion sensor to tell if you're at your desk or not, that's not that invasive. Yeah, but just get a puppy. And put if it has put microphones, then obviously there's problems yeah. and so on. Right? Yeah. I would uh, be more concerned when they put the urine analysis sensors in the uh, bathroom. <laughs> and then... <laughs> the uh, It just reminds me of a system I looked at designing when I was still in high school, actually, for a place where my dad worked. They wanted a attendant system for, like, construction workers. So we were going to have, like a barcode on the side of everybody's hard hat and they walk by and it would scan it or something. Yeah. Keep track of people showed up for work or not. Uh, you know, it, the main thing is it had to be fairly fast so that it didn't slow down people getting into work. Yeah. Anymore. You just want something. I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't know who, who, what you would think at the, uh, at, at a, at a, at a, at the daily telegraph, they would actually measure performance based on output, but yeah. Yeah. I can understand it. Some office type environments, you know, Knowing how, when people are actually at their desk might be useful. Call but, center? Yeah. Well, in call center, it's, you know, they log into, the phone log into a system or something. Yeah. You could measure by how many calls they took and how yeah. quickly they resolved them. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. That one, not so much. But yeah. yeah. Hard to say. Uh, it seems like they've been able to, we've been able to measure performances by employees until we have these devices somehow. So they could probably figure Well, it. yes. And more importantly, you want to measure performance of, the employee by their output, not by whether they show up or not, because otherwise you get a bunch of people that show up and don't do anything. Spend all day on Reddit and playing they, around they with the video drivers. Around, whereas the people that uh, uh, do work but you know, yeah. take breaks or whatever, yeah. don't. So speaking of uh, doing work and taking breaks, we will not be live next week. Uh, I'm traveling to scale, and we have a pre-recorded episode for you that will be all fresh content, all new, ready to go, out in the feeds and up on the website on Thursday. So all you have to do is just go to the site. Normally we are live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom, over at Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. Don't forget, we do also want your feedback, your emails, your questions at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, and you can supply content for this show at techsnap.reddit.com. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 